Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. The scripture reading this morning will be from John chapter 4, verse 23. John chapter 4, verse 23. But the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. Isn't that profound? The Father is seeking true worshipers to worship Him. He's looking for us. He's looking for people out around us as we go out about our business throughout the week. And we are in the middle of a sermon series on fixing our eyes on Jesus. So when we make eye contact with God, good things happen. If one of us is looking away, that's not good. We want full eye contact with God. We want to be looking for Him. Jesus said, when you seek Him, you'll what? You'll find Him, right? And the Father is seeking such people who will worship truly and sincerely to to worship Him. So we're going to talk about that this morning because He found a pretty unlikely candidate. Uh, The Lord did. When He was traversing Galilee in the small fishing village of Capernaum, which is on the northwest shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. He was a Roman, and he was a centurion, and he was posted there, serving under the tetrarchy that was in place. The Romans uh, were the world empire at that time. Daniel foretold this when he said God would set up his kingdom during the reign of these kings, and he described them, and it was uh, not only in the order that would come down to the Roman Empire, but the nature of the Roman Empire, and they ruled with iron, but there was trouble here and there. And he said, so the, the, they were partly made of clay, if you remember in Daniel, uh, how he described that empire that would come. And in the midst of this, though, would be a kingdom that God would establish that would, would reign forever. All right, and we're here in that time. So the whole lifespan of Jesus takes place during the reign of the Romans, and they're occupying Palestine. And there's legions of military men spread all throughout the region. Ten cohorts made a legion in the Roman Empire. Six centuries, or hundreds, made a cohort, and the captain over a hundred was called a centurion. The centurion was over a hundred, ten of those made a cohort, and a cohort, uh, sorry, six of those made a cohort, and ten of those made a legion. And so there were thousands of Romans throughout the land. Centurions were enlisted men who rose up through the ranks. They were not uh, men of privilege, it wasn't royalty, it was earned if you're a centurion. The historian Placebus said that they were the finest men in the army, the finest men of character, that is. But we also know that they were battle-hardened. They had experience in warfare, and they had seen many things and experienced many things with their eyes 
and with their hands. Some of them ruled with cruelty. Some of them were, were likely the ones who carried out the murder of those Galileans that were brought up uh, in Luke chapter 13 to Jesus. Someone told Jesus about the Galileans whom Pilate mingled their blood with while they sacrificed in the temple. Uh, Pilate did this thing. These Galileans were under the jurisdiction of Herod in Galilee, and he had them murdered for some reason in the temple. And a centurion and his men probably carried that out. And so they had to do the dirty work of these tetrarchs. Luke in chapter 3 actually tells us the names of the tetrarchy, that is, uh, four rulers. A tetrarch is four rulers, all right? So there were four regions in Palestine where these Romans ruled. Pilate was over Judea. We're familiar with Pilate. Herod was over Galilee, and at this time of this story, they were enemies with one another, probably for Pilate doing things out of his jurisdiction, like murdering Galileans down in Jerusalem. Uh, they, were, they had a falling out. Philip, Herod's brother, whom John the Baptist took issue with, was tetrarch of Iturea, which is in the north and east, and Licinius over Abilene, another region of Syria. So these Romans were all throughout. At least eight of them are mentioned in the New Testament, all of them in favorable light. Favorable light. Uh, three of them came to believe Jesus was the Son of God. The one we'll talk about today, early in his ministry, recognized him as someone very special and far above himself. The second one was the one at the foot of the cross, who as far as we can tell with all sincerity said, truly, this was the Son of God. The third one that we know believed was Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Interestingly, these men came to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. I hope that they are all three and many more amongst those people that we'll get to meet in heaven, don't you? Did you ever wonder who's going to be there? It's just going to be such a mix of people, of, of all types, of all classes. And that's just how God's kingdom is intended to be. It's reached down through all the classes, through the ages, and um, permeated uh, the, all of the civilizations and all of the uh, ranks of men. But only one of these men made Jesus marvel. The Bible says that this centurion in Luke chapter 7, go ahead and turn there if you would. Luke chapter 7 is the only scripture we're going to turn to today. Just open it up and we'll camp out there together. It says Jesus marveled at this man. And I want to look at why, because arguably this is the most notable healing miracle in the New Testament for many reasons. So his post is in Capernaum. It's a fishing village on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was a travel route from, from the north to the south along the Jordan Valley, so they would come up through Capernaum. Uh, this town was the town that became known as Jesus' own town. And he did many miracles there, but this is still early. And this captain had become a lover of their nation. So while Jesus is doing carpentry work in his father's shop, uh, this man is learning about the ways of the Jews on his post. This man is one who becomes... Uh, a lover of the nation, as these Jews report, and he built them a synagogue, which means he probably built it of his own wherewithal. 
and used his own men to do labor to build them a synagogue. So he's in great favor with the Jews in that area and in that town of Capernaum. And he's watchful. He's paying attention with his ears and his eyes. Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. This is that centurion we're talking about. So when he heard about Jesus, that is being there, when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this thing was deserving, for, quote, he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue, unquote. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I've not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Let's take a look at this exchange, which is more than likely the same centurion and the account in Matthew. Matthew writes it, and you read it as if the centurion went to him. But oftentimes in the scripture, uh, that uh, if one has the authority to send with a message, through others, it is written as the person who sent the message saying it. And that's likely what has happened here. So the, the more detailed account is likely Luke's, where this centurion says something to Jesus. With Matthew, you think that he's face to face, but here we learn he sends his message through people. Let's, let's talk a little bit about this and then take away a few things for us today. Let's look at the centurion's first plea. He heard Jesus was in town. And so he sends the Jewish elders with whom he had favor to make the request to come to his house and heal his servant who was endeared to him. Uh, this servant was someone that not only the Roman was using to help him accomplish his daily tasks, but someone who had become very dear to his heart. And he was very concerned that he was going to die. Matthew says he was ready to die as well. But he sends the Jews. Now here's a man who has been relying on the advantage of his rank and file as a Roman to accomplish things in Galilee amongst the Jews. No doubt, right? Uh, he's respected for his brass. And he considers it now potentially disadvantageous to what he wants from this Jewish healer who he's tipped off to that might be the Messiah. 
He's at least a miracle worker. But I think there's more going on in this man's mind because of what he says to him in the second exchange. But the first thing is that he sends these Jews to him, and as the Jews do, they recognize rank and file. You remember in the society uh, that we read Jesus entering into in his ministry, the Pharisees uh, had their rank among the people, and the Sadducees had their rank among the people, and they loved, they loved it when people praised them uh, for being the leaders of the Jews, right? And Jesus went head on with that many, many times. Well, this centurion considers his rank not only invalid in this case, but maybe disadvantageous and doesn't even consider himself worthy to go out to him. But he sends Jews and what do they do? They start making a logical argument. We want to tell you about this man and we're going to convince you that he's deserving of this thing. It's just what they do because in their minds, it's not just about Jesus being compassionate. It's about we've got to make a case that he deserves this. And that's how they looked at their faith too. Who deserves blessing from God? Well, let me see. Let me look at your file. That's how they looked at things. But you know what's interesting? Look at the simple answer that was given. When they made their case and all this, it says Jesus went with them. Jesus and Matthew, Matthew says that he said, I will come with you. And I think, they just wasted a lot of breath. They just wasted a lot of breath. Wouldn't it be enough for Jesus if a man came and said, I'm concerned about my servant, I'm grieving. Would you come and heal him? Jesus would have said what? I'll come and heal him. You see, we worry too much about rank in approaching Jesus. And this man, first of all, impressed Jesus by not being there, and he was unimpressed with the big brigade that came to make this argument. The second plea was this. Within just probably a few minutes, assuming that Jesus heard the request and said, I'll come with you, and he went immediately. Let's just assume that he said, I'll come. And it's a fairly small town. They estimate the population to be about 1,500 people. You know, that's about five times the size of our audience today. That's not a very big city. And it's still not very big. And so it wouldn't take him long to get to the house. And so he starts to make his way, and he's getting close to the house, and here comes another brigade of people. This time it's who? It's the man's friends. It's the centurion's friends. So he was in high held in high esteem by the Jews, and he had friends also that would do anything that he wanted. But some, some thinking was taking place in his mind. And he sent him out and said, come and heal my son. And between the time that they got there and the time the second group went out, he said, I'm not even worthy that he should come under my house, and I'm not even worthy that I should go to him. But he sends the message, and the message is very clear what he thinks of Jesus. Do you see it? Lord, wow. Wow. There's only supposed to be one Lord of this centurion's life. Who's that? This time it would have, this time it would have been Tiberius Caesar. There's only one Lord this guy's supposed to have. And he addresses Jesus 
as Lord. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. I didn't even think myself worthy to come out of my house and meet you face to face. I don't want you to be troubled by me and my request. And then he says, I understand something about you. He was making a comparison about what he had heard about Jesus. And this is where I set forth to you that he was studying the Old Testament. And he was listening to whom Jesus said he was. Not only does he call him Lord, but he said, I am like you. I have been placed under authority. I thought Jesus was Lord of all. Who's he under the authority of, church? God the Father in heaven. He came to do his Father's will. He did it flawlessly. And in no greater place do we see that than throughout the Gospel of John, where he continually said, the things I speak to you are from my Father. I came to show you my Father. I and my Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I came to do his will. Oh God, I long to come back to heaven. John 17 in a prayer to be with you, my work here is done. All through the book, my father, my father. And the centurion says to him, I also am a man placed under authority. So I know who your father is. Wow. The Jews were trying to figure that out. In fact, they were just flat out mad at him already, many of them. The leadership was already mad at him, proclaiming to be one with God and that God was uh, the father, was his father. Isn't this the carpenter's son, those in Nazareth were said? Isn't this the carpenter's son, Joseph's son? They're struggling with it. The centurion says, I know whose authority you're under. And I also have soldiers under me. I know that you can command people and they should listen to you like my servants do me. Like my soldiers, when I say come, they come. When I say go, they go. When I say do this, they do it. And I know you're like that. Wow. I mean, I'm impressed. Let alone Jesus, who's standing on the street listening to this. And Jesus responded with marveling, with awe. That means, again, it's the facial expression like, wow. And he turned to his followers amongst who would be the twelve, and said, I haven't found faith like this in all Israel. And I'm, He's been up and down the river. He's been into Jerusalem plenty of times now. Remember at age 12, he was already starting to have them conversations with the leadership. He's already starting to listen and get a feel for where God's own people were in relation to God. And not until this time, this is the first person that he says about this, I haven't found faith this great in all Israel. And here it is, a Roman centurion who understands who I am. That's what makes this potentially the greatest healing miracle that takes place in the New Testament. Was not only because it was by proxy, which blows my mind. I mean, listen. Listen. It blows my mind that Jesus would touch somebody and leprosy would leave. I, 
It blows my mind that he would say, stand up, and somebody would stand up, and their bones would heal right before your eyes. That just boggles my mind. But to speak something, and then somebody in another place arise and be well, is I can't fathom that. The, the, the time-space thing, that, that element just gets me. I, I can't imagine that. But this man said, I know that if you just speak the word. Now, where did he hear that? Now, in John's gospel, which he wrote later, later, John explains to us in Christianity 101 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, John has to explain that to all the people of his day and put it in writing for us. This centurion was on it. He's all right, if this is the Son of God, then it is He who said, let there be light, and there was light. It is He who said, let the earth bring forth grass and flowers and trees, and let the seas be teeming with fish, and the skies be filled with the birds that we have in our mind to create. And so he said, if you just speak the word, and he's already got, he's already got a case that he can draw from with a nobleman's son. So I thought this was you all along, but now I know it, and I'm not worthy to come before you. Just speak the word. And Jesus said, yes. Yes, that's what God is seeking. That's what I'm looking for, Israel. Listen, I haven't found faith like this in the whole nation. And so I believe he's calling out to us through this writing about this man in just 10 verses. And he's saying, church, wake up. Read about your Lord and Savior here and take home some things from this account. And here's some of those things we can take home. First of all, church, let's just say anybody is included when John writes what Jesus said, for God so loved the world, the whole world, everybody in it, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever, doesn't matter who, doesn't matter when, doesn't matter where, doesn't matter what you think of them, whoever believes... In Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Anybody is fair game. God is seeking people who are seeking Him. And that can come from anywhere in our society. And we rank people in our society if we're truthful. If we're truthful, we do. Now, we, we try not to, but we have our book with our pages for these people and those people generally. And I hope we don't do that to the extreme that it causes us to be biased or partial or unfavorable to anybody, but we just tend to classify people too much. And Jesus is more than happy to go to a man that many would class unworthy, a Roman, an occupier, someone who's brought about harm upon people in his life, surely Jesus wouldn't do anything for him. God wouldn't consider this man. Meanwhile, church, while all of God's people are fussing about these things, and sometimes while we're fussing about people in our society that we don't think are worthy, 
Tax collectors and sinners are going behind our back into the kingdom. That's what Jesus said would happen. Tax collectors and sinners are going in ahead of you. My people who were born on covenant. We've entered into a covenant with God through Jesus Christ. May it not be said about us, church, that those whom we deemed unworthy are going in while we're trying to figure out who's worthy to save around us and into the kingdom for eternal life. Secondly, Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This man humbled himself. Now think of it. Herod wanted to see Jesus. Herod's the tetrarch of this region. He longed to see Jesus, got him into his presence, ended up mocking him and having his soldiers mock him and send him away, unimpressed. The centurion who's serving under Herod says, I'm not even worthy to lay eyes on him. And Jesus exalted him, didn't he? He did just what he wanted him to do. He was happy to do it. He'll bless those who are humble. So humble yourself in God's presence and in the presence of his son. Paul said, all the things I've accomplished in my life are like rubbish. That's exactly what this centurion said. And that's exactly what we should say. Let's humble ourselves before him. The Roman, thirdly, found favor with Jesus the same way we will, by seeking Him so that He'll save us. This was His mission from the Father to seek such to worship Him. And so we learn from Hebrews, for example, chapter 11, verse 6, that uh, God is a rewarder of them who diligently seek Him. God rewards those who diligently seek Him. We also understand that knowledge is power. Paul wrote to the Ephesian church and to us, and he said, find out what the will of the Lord is. His disciples said, teach us to pray, and he taught them. Church, we must ever be learning so that we can know our Savior intimately, so that when the occasion arises that we may need Him, we might not falter. We might not say, I'm unworthy and I won't even ask. No. He says you've been made worthy and you can come boldly before the throne and ask anything of Him who understands your plight. Or we might say flippantly, I'm going to pray to God and ask Him for this. And we ask, as James said, amiss, that we might spend it on our pleasures. You see, we should know the nature of Jesus from stories just like this. We should be studied up on Him and know how to approach our King who welcomes us into His presence when we're humble and when we understand who He is. He's happy to be with us. That's what we did this morning, as Richard pointed out, when we came together in communion. That's what we learned about last week when we talked about whether or not you're worthy to commune with Him, right? Jesus makes you worthy. Jesus made this centurion worthy of a blessing. I'd like to just conclude by praying today. I'd like to pray for us to learn the lessons that this Roman taught us about Jesus so that we can make Jesus marvel and say, that's great faith. That's great faith. Not so we can pat ourselves on the back, but that we can be assured 
that we know how to relate to our Lord and Savior, that we can receive blessing from Him in this life, not only for ourselves, but for all those around us. Would you pray with me? This is a prayer for all of us together. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that there are people on the earth like this Roman centurion who cut a path for us to follow. It's shocking that he was as advanced in his knowledge and in his faith as he was. On one hand it is, but on the other hand, all along through the history of the world, you've been telling us to get ready for Jesus. Father, here we are with the entire New Testament. All that we need to understand life and godliness, Peter said, laid out on our lap before us, held in our hands, on our phones, your words of life. Father, help us not to be ignorant of Jesus. Help us not to be caught off guard where you might say, have you not read? Help us to be as studious as this man was. Help us to be as bold and humble at the same time. Bold enough to ask, humble enough that we don't consider ourselves as weighty as our Lord. We're not greater than our Master. And I pray, God, that everything that we do could be done in such a way that others are blessed too, like this man's servant. What a gracious heart he must have had to be raised up from his bed toward his master, but also toward his Lord, Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that we'll see these people in heaven because we want to be there with them, following in the pattern of faith that they followed. God, I pray that everyone in the room will be obedient to you in all things, be baptized for the remission of sins, repent of sin, and live every day glorifying you for the rest of our lives. It's my prayer for those gathered here today, including myself. In Jesus we pray, amen. If we can help you become a Christian today, come forward now. We'll stand and sing this song that Keith's picked out for us. Mm -hmm.